Steve or Stephen, what, what do you prefer? Steve, I think. Okay, Steve. Great to see you. Well, thanks for, thanks for having me. I'm um, really happy to, to have a good conversation with you now. Excellent, excellent. Now, we, we started um, pre-recording by discussing our, our clothing, and, and you also asked me what kind of following I have. Um, it's, it's fairly modest because I've only just started, but um, I, I mentioned that my mother is one of the followers. So, hi, Mum. Hi, Mum. Nice to have you. Yeah, and she, she always has some, some feedback, which, which is good. Um, so I feel slightly like um, the comedian who has his mum on the show, Ramesh. But <laughs> yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. So I might actually have to get my mum on, on here. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I can see that coming. Now, now um, we're, we're in interesting times, so maybe let's get that out of the way first of all. How, how are you getting on with, um, with lockdown? Yeah, fine. Personally, myself, I'm finding ways to be creative and keep fit. And then the world, and I'm safe as well, and, and the world around me is unstable, um, full of fear and uncertainty, you know, in and around the family. Um, so it's, you know, but I'm a lucky man. I've had, I've had a vaccination. I was lucky to get that. And... Um, yeah, just keeping steady and creative, and um, it's tough, but um, you, you're not alone. Even though you might feel it sometimes, you're not alone. Eh? It it looks like you've been extremely busy, and and I've been attending. I think bar one, all of your webinars that you've been doing now for well some months, and they are they're superb. Um, and and obviously we met before that, and we we did a podcast together with with Cody, of course. That's right. That's right. That's right. And, and then I came down and had a couple of, um, of brilliant days with you and your, your team down in Cardiff. Yep. And then, then the webinar. So it's just been this, you, you've been a constant in my life now for uh, probably a year and a half or so after a long hiatus where I was aware and then, and then a big gap. And then you've really, you've really come into my, to my world, which I appreciate massively. No, no I mean, uh, uh, one, one weird and ironic consequence of lockdown is that in some kind of avenues, it brings people closer together. Um, and it sounds like that's happened with us. And um, yeah, so I'm delighted to be able to chat to you about what you feel are important questions. Oh, it's so good. And I love the way you put so many things. But, but actually, go, going back, I noticed that we've got a, a common origin in that we both started our careers in, let's call it healthcare, to be wide, yeah, um, yeah. As, as nurses. Right, right. Yeah, mine was very short-lived, but that's correct. Yeah, I was, uh, I was training to be a nurse in the 70s in Cape Town, South Africa. And then it, that was a very uh, dark and dangerous time in that country's history. And um, I had to effectively flee. I was uh, strongly anti-apartheid and was a bit of a naughty boy uh, in the eyes of the fascist government. So I then left and... Um, one of my survival routes here, this side in Europe, was through psychology. So I had to leave nursing behind. But um, 
some of my heart stays in nursing. Um, and they, they, it, it's the most wonderful profession. And, and many of them feel to me like the un, unsung heroes of, of survival and healing in so many settings. So prior prior to nursing, what I mean, what, what took you into nursing? That might be a better way to, to put it. I failed at university. I got a third class degree at the university and didn't know what to do with myself, to be honest. So I was a, I was a bit of a late developer. And um, I think I was more preoccupied in political things than university and mountain climbing and surfing and that sort of thing. Um, so I fell into nursing as a job. But before then, I was a student and someone who grew up in a, in a strongly anti-apartheid environment with parents who were anyway exiles and refugees themselves from Russia, uh, Russia and Lithuania. So, you know, I, I didn't grow up in a kind of a stable environment with a strong sense of being rooted, although um, uh, Cape Town, South Africa is a place that grabs you. And so in that sense... Um, uh, Cape Town is always my home and I love the place, but it's not really um, where our family comes from. But there you go. So nursing was just a brief foray for me uh, before moving on to other things in a bit of a, against the background of a family that's over the generations very used to packing bags and buggering off, to be blunt. Yeah. Wow. Wow. But you were drawn to, to caring. Yeah. Sometimes I think that's displaced energy from my political activity, which was so filled with hopelessness. I mean, it really was. 60s and 70s in South Africa was a time of feeling that you were up against a fascist, racist regime um, of formidable force. And um, in a way, um, moving into a sort of a caring role was at least one avenue that you could go down where you could feel you were doing some good because the rest was tough and rough. Yeah. Wow. And and so in that role, albeit it was a, a short time, what what kinds of situations were you in? What what kind of nursing was it? I started off with quite rough stuff, actually. I was a, I was an orderly looking after very sick people, um, attending classes, uh, nursing education classes in a very hierarchical system where the matron was chief and it boom, boom, boom. It was a classically hierarchical, almost Victorian system. And, um, but I started struggling. I started struggling to cope emotionally with the death around me and went to the matron and said, I'm struggling. And she said, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll put you in a psyche, in a psyche ward. So there, there I had to wheel people into electric shock treatment, which, I suppose it's one step up more positive from, uh, from washing out dying people's mouths, you know, but seriously an eye opener. Um, and then I moved into an addiction unit from there. And that's where motivational interviewing started for me. Um, I had experiences in that environment as a nursing orderly uh, that was strong and strident and uh, lit the fuel inside my fire so that when I left South Africa, that fire was still burning with this whole question of how on earth do you get people to change? Because in that addiction unit, they were using a very direct and confrontational approach to change with people. And um, there was sort of a backfire effect that 
um, I noticed where there was an abrasive atmosphere in the, in the conversations with the patients. And one backfire effect for me quite literally was firing a patient walked out of a, a group that I was running. He hadn't said a word the whole time, but then committed uh, murder and suicide. Um, sort of ultimate form of backfire resistance, if you like. And um, folk were kind and decent to me. And I've since, since met them. A social worker 30 years later who was there and who comforted me at the time, um, she also remembered that incident. But it lit my fire in the sense that traumatic as experience was, uh, when I got to Europe, at United Kingdom, Scotland, and then Wales, um, I noticed a similar pattern in addiction treatment and um, uh, had the luck, I suppose, of reading a tiny little paper in it insignificant journal called Motivational Interview. I was asked to review it actually, and um, started changing my practice in line with the incredibly counterintuitive ideas in this paper and noticed a difference. And then I started training people in it when I qualified as a psychologist. And then by pure fluke in Sydney, Australia, where I, I won a fellowship, Guy who wrote that paper was in the room next door to me, also on some kind of visiting thing. So uh, his counterintuitive idea, uh, we exchanged experiences and we've been friends and colleagues ever since. Um, but the counterintuitive nature of it was very striking, yeah. which is in a way, the harder the problem you're faced with, the softer is the style needed to help someone deal with it. Yeah. If you like, that's one way of putting it. I could put it in more fancy language, but that looking back feels like the essence of it. A style. Yeah. Cause when, you know, this is one of the things that's, that's come up, you know, what, what is it? What is it that you, that you do? Is it, is it an art? Is it a style? Is it a form of, of communication? The birth of it really seemed to come from, that, that nursing experience. And then, and then was it given a name when you read that article? Yeah, it was called motivational interviewing, but the three words you use, what an art, a style, and what was the other word you used? Well, an, an approach or a, a way of communicating. A way of communicating, it was all those three things, you see. It was all those three things. And um, because it was a change inside me to begin with, okay? It, it was a change inside my heart, if you like. Um, it was a change in style from trying to insert wisdom into somebody. You kind of relied on them more. And I do think it's an art. If conversation is like a dance where th there's a fluidity to it, of course, there can be a discordant quality, but conversation at its best, if there's a fluidity to it and also an unpredictable quality, it, that's a lot like a tango dance if you think about it, where the steps of the dance and the techniques involved are very important, but the overriding sense of it being a style, a particular way of, of, of dancing has its parallels here in the art of conversation. And um, when it goes very well, it does feel autistic. So I think, I, I don't think it's pretentious of you in any way to use a, a word like that. 
However, what we did, which we could say it might have been a mistake, was to give this a name and to um, call it something like motivational interview. It rapidly became a, a form of therapy, if you like, which I don't think that was a mistake, but um, perhaps we can talk later what, what my misgivings were, but for better or worse, uh, Richmond, this was used quite widely in addiction treatment and then mental health. And uh, then I, I, of the two of us, uh, Miller stayed very much in the world of therapy and psychotherapy. I was more interested in its wider relevance because I could see from my experiences in nursing and from uh, doing a doctoral thesis in general hospitals, I could see that attempts by other people to correct the thinking of clients or patients were widespread. Mm. Um, as we see today with something like vaccine hesitancy, the instinct, and it comes from a good place to say to the general population, no, you're wrong. This is the truth, right? You're wrong and we are right. Um, they've done research on this as well in the field of, of, of vaccine hesitancy and, and mass media communications. Correcting people's apparent misunderstandings doesn't leads to backfire or kickback. So I saw that in healthcare. And then I suppose if we cut a 30-year story short, I noticed it in other areas like criminal justice and worked in prisons for a while, a lot in healthcare, Africa, HIV during that terrible period. Uh, around two, in the early 2000s, um, and then education, and then sport. Um, and my next venture is going to be in parenting. Wow. Because, uh, you know, I've been reluctant to sort of go into the home, you know, um, partly because my own kids would fall over laughing if they heard that... Uh, I was, a, I was talking about motivational interviewing at home. They, 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 they do. They just kill themselves laughing. Who, that guy? Does he think, oh, wow. <laughs> but seriously, um, uh, attempts by parents to rectify deficits and problems in their children is a widespread issue. And I don't now, with the benefit of hindsight, see much difference to what I experienced as a nurse back in Cape Town, where we were trying to rectify deficits and problems in people because we thought we knew what was best. Yeah. So I, I see a, a straight line right through all of this. And, you know, Richmond, it's been a hell of a journey. Um, but that's where I think I'm heading is in the world of sport because I love it. And I love watching people having fun and thriving and coaches learning and developing. But then we're gonna, I'm going to come back home <laughs> for better or worse. Well, you're, you're taking what is, what is a, a beautiful way because for whatever reason, there's been an obsession with, with fixing and I know this and you don't know and I'm going to give you this information or I'm going to tell you to do this thing. The power struggle, I mean, healthcare is my thing, the power struggle there. Um, and un unlocking the the humanity and, and of course you know we're we're always in some kind of relationship with with something and it makes complete sense that this would be so widely 
useful or beyond useful i mean you it's i just think there's it's so great that you've taken the potential of 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 mi into these different fields um obviously you've got to balance out some stuff is tough and some stuff is enjoyable so maybe that's what you're talking about there with the the parenting that that world that'll be interesting and then the sporting world that you love yeah i guess the impulse to fix things for other people comes from a very good place in people's hearts. Um, that took me a while to realize. I, I initially felt very critical, and I used to think oh, it's just an inappropriate communication device. But it, it does come from a good place. So that, that's important to remember. Because if people are going to change the way they handle situations and problems, a good place to start is with their heart. You know, if you don't have their heart, don't expect their heads to change. You know, they, that won't happen. So as a trainer with a trainer's hat on, uh, it's important to acknowledge that people are always, always usually wanting to do a good job. I mean, parents have kids because they want to see kids thrive and they want to do a good job. Uh, ditto sports coaches, school teachers. However, something's gone radically wrong. And I can't say... Uh, I've got my head around this adequately, but something's gone radically wrong in our society anyway. Um, I wouldn't like to generalize too much beyond our Western culture, but something's gone radically wrong whereby um, fixing people, telling people what to do, instructing them about how to improve, being obsessed with outcome targets. So therefore, if you want to get to that, I want to get you to that target. Now, this could be a school teacher or a sports coach or whomever, or a healthcare practitioner. They, they've got targets that run right through the whole system. Then the way to deal with this is to encourage, persuade, coerce people to achieve the targets. And something's gone really wrong there because from our understanding of motivation uh, and of myself, People are less likely to be motivated by things that appear in the minds of other people than the reasons they find inside themselves. So it's not a very good way of motivating people to change. And I think, you know, there's a lot of research and a lot of fields that, that, that point to this. I've just been reading a paper about vaccine hesitancy and a brilliant experiment where they tried four different ways of persuading people to change their minds about the measles vaccine, all of them failed because they were all variations on the theme of we've got to get you to change. Yeah. But Richmond, I don't understand why this has happened other than the more stressed people are under, the more they feel they need to control things and the more they feel they need to control things, the more they tell other people what they should do. Yeah. And I, I've seen that, okay? I've seen it in sport and education. Am I ranting on a bit too or is it clear? No, I think that's really clear that that we work by heart, but yet somehow that's been it's overgrown by the way society's gone, particularly Western society. And and you know, we've always had hierarchies, I suppose. There's always been someone at the top passing instructions down, whether it be in school or in yeah, and then 
And then for us as professionals, I bet you know this as, as you know, one of the leading experts in, 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 in the treatment of pain. Um, then when people find they can't solve a problem, they refer to some other expert because they're not going to rely on the they're not going to rely on the person to solve the problem. Okay. So then they refer to me. Okay, so now can you solve this person's problem? So the person comes in with the expectation that I'm going to solve the problem. And so it all goes all around. I spoke to someone yesterday who works in an elite rugby club. He said, yeah, I was called in there because it was, this was a, you know, a, a highly functioning elite rugby club in European rugby, except they always seem to lose games in the last 10 minutes. So the head coach said to me, can you solve that problem? Well, you know, I could see familiar bells ringing there because actually the solution to this problem is actually in the players. Okay, they're the ones that have to not lose in the last 10 minutes. So actually the solution would have been, hey guys, why do you think you're losing? And, and, and draw the wisdom out of them. Instead, the head coach thought, I can't solve this problem, so some psychologist can come in and solve it. Well, I mean, that's quite a common pattern. <laughs> Yeah, and you wonder what message that is to the players that suddenly the coach is bringing in a psychologist and everyone will have their own ideas about what that means and what that represents. Yeah, he had his work cut out for him, you know. It's, it's not like you and me, people come to see us, see us because they've got a problem and they want to talk about it more or less. Um, so this is quite widespread and, and, and you know, also in education, um, when something goes wrong, um, there's an inclination to blame the person. Yep. It's your fault. Okay. And then just around the corners, punishment in schools. Okay. And I see it in sports as well. So you come, you come late for practice, go home. Mm. Okay. So what am I trying to say here, Richmond? Um, it, in all of these examples, the solution to the problem lies in the person if you don't blame them and secondly this was Miller's insight way back that I saw in, in that paper in the early 80s that instead of blaming and labeling the person the other as having a problem that needs fixing by somebody else if it's not me what about the possibility that I'm making it worse from the way that I'm speaking to the person okay might it be my fixing style that is evoking the kickback? In which case, is there something I can do to repair this relationship so that it, it's on a more equal footing and based on drawing the wisdom out for them? So there were these two elements to, to, to motivational interviewing. One, drawing the wisdom out from the person, but the other, actually it's got to do with me and the style that I use. I don't know if that's helpful. Yeah. So there's, there's a couple of assumptions there, aren't there? The one that the person organically has the resources within them, and we're just trying to shine the light on that. And two, um, that we need this, this self-awareness of ourselves and the situation. And I remember you using the eagle and the mouse. Analogy. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It, it seems like skillful practice if it's going to approach artistry in conversation involves handling the moment-to-moment -moment exchange. That's the level of the mouse. 
or the dance step, if you like. But the eagle is, is also important in which you, you've got your eye on the movement as a whole and where the conversation or the dance is going. And it seems like skillful practice in, in, in involves attention to both of those. Yeah. And one would practice that. I mean, you can practice that with any conversation with anyone, of course. Do you, do you think there are some other ways that one can practice being present that will be useful to enhance your, say, MI skills? That's a really crude, blunt way of describing it, I think. But It's very blunt. Any other ways you can practice? You're wondering that, I mean, obviously, I, you can practice in any conversation especially one in which you're trying to be helpful to someone else, trying to listen to someone else. But you're wondering whether there's other ways you can improve your skills? Yeah, are there, are there some other... So, for example, meditation, where the form where you're being present and, and learning to be openly aware to whatever's happening right now. Ah, I see what you mean. I see what you mean. I mean... <laughs> Look, in, in, in order to conduct a good conversation or dance well, you need to reflect about the way you're dancing or talking. So the capacity to reflect about the way I am, how I'm feeling in the case of conversation, what impact this is having on other people is essential. Now, I don't feel that meditation is necessarily the royal road to this. Anything that helps declutter your mind, calm you down, focus your attention and compassion on the other person is going to help you. And me personally, meditation is not for me, but I, I like to believe that there's lots of ways in which I can um, settle my mind and heart down so that it's, it's focused in a helpful way. And that is something that you can practice. So yes, there are other ways. Mm. Um, simply being aware of, of, of how I am with someone else is helpful. When you're talking to somebody, it can be fun to imagine what someone's going to say after you've said something. So if you make a statement or a question, uh, it can be hell of a useful to be clear in your own mind about why you're asking that question and what the likely impact's going to be. What are, how are they likely to respond? Now, that awareness um, has helped me enormously. Just trying to imagine how someone's going to respond before I, before I ask the question or make the statement. So that's something you work out in your own mind. And your mind needs to be relatively uncluttered to do that, if you know what I mean. And if meditation helps, go for it. Yeah. How, how do you unclutter your mind? me <laughs> it's a great question i think the most important thing is for me was realizing that my mind was too cluttered okay because i re I, I suddenly realized i was being too clever and that cleverness is not the solution to being helpful in fact in my particular case cleverness undermined it and when i realized that it was very helpful because i just thought no i don't have to solve this problem through cleverness 
what I'm trying to do is tune into the wisdom of the person in front of me. So there are lots of different ways of getting rocks out of your rucksack, so to speak. <laughs> okay. And cleverness for me was a wonderful rock to throw away. And there are others. There are others like, I want this outcome for this person. Well, that can weigh you down and stop you listening, right? So there's lots of different rocks that have got labels on them that you can take out the rucksack. Um, so a lot of what we're talking about here is what you don't do rather than what you do do, okay? And I like to think about it like, you imagine having a conversation where you have to sit on your hands. It's quite tough, but you have to be restrained. And it's that quality of restraint that's particularly useful. And, and I'm a bit of an impatient bugger, okay, with a short attention span. So it's a big lesson for me to learn to sit on my hands, not be clever, um, so it depends on your temperament, really, I guess. I don't know. What do you reckon? It sounds like you've realized and learned a hell of a lot about yourself. Yeah, I think emotional regulation is an issue that it's only coming to my attention as I get older. I think I've been emotionally not well regulated which was linked to being clever and enthusiastic as well. And um, I noticed this in elite sport, for example, um, and their coaches. I noticed that the coaches are struggling with helping athletes regulate themselves. And every, every athlete's different. So like when they come off at halftime in football, they can be highly aroused, especially if there are a couple of goals done, disappointed and all sorts of things. Now, what's helpful for them to go forward and, and um, perform better in the second half is a question that coaches are puzzling over. And um, so I think emotional regulation um, is an important part of development. It seems a pity that after, you know, well into my 60s that I'm starting to think about it now, I kind of wish... I had parents or a school teacher who said to me, "Hang on, boy, do you think you're a bit you're a bit uh, unregulated here? You know, no one ever did. You know, so it took me forty years to to realize it. But I noticed it in other kids in my own that that, that if you can regulate your emotional state, <laughs> it, it, it helps. You have some advantages. That that's for sure. But coaching, you know, coaching a team where you you know rugby, you might have. 15 individuals and, and at half time you, you, you simply don't have the time to go to each and and give them some kind of comment um or feedback and feedback in itself is a big subject um so you as a coach then you you've got to come up with something that you can say which somehow taps into the collective and i don't i don't think it's you know that's falling back into the trap that miller and i recognized which is you're starting to fill your rucksack with the idea that you've got to provide the solution and fix a problem for other people. And so there are some coaches who don't do anything at halftime because they recognize that the limitations of that. And there's a couple of coaches, in fact, I've got, I've got a call straight after this one with a coach who's sending me a tape of the players actually going around one at a time, mm. saying how they want to prove in halftime. And he's sending me a video of that, which I need to look at. Wow. Um, 
So there are people experimenting with empowering others to come up with solutions. And you might think, well, what's that got to do with motivational interviewing? And I can clarify that, which is that when, and this is just an arbitrary example, when a group of, of footballers in halftime answer the question one at a time, how they want to improve things for the team when they go out, they are emitting what we call change talk in motivational interview. And we know from conversations about change in clinical settings that the more change talk there is, the more you elicit that change talk, the better is the outcome. Yeah. Rather than the coach emitting the change talk. So I think there's lots to explore there. And I've, I've been very impressed how in a short period of time, six minutes, they get around the whole team divided into two groups, answering two questions in circles, and out they go. And the coach just adds a few comments and out they go. So um, the possibilities for... Uh, taking stuff out of the rucksack of the coach, teacher, parent, counselor, nurse, taking them out of the rucksack, calming and clearing their minds, listening to the person in front of them and using compassion and curiosity to evoke the solution from them. That sounds to me like strips of jargon, which I've done, sounds to me like what healing is about. And... Um, I could also impose, superimpose on that all the, the, the rationale, the content, and the evidence about motivational interview, because I think that's that's what it is. How's that? That's does that sound a bit of a rant and a rave. No, I think that sounds awesome. You know, he, healing's a really powerful word, isn't it? And it means different things to, to different people. But if we're assuming that we're healing, we're talking about someone processing some kind of wound and moving on. Yeah, it's a good way of putting it. It's a good way of putting it. And I like the word, I'll tell you why, because it invites us to consider what the common ingredients are in healing across all forms of counseling, therapy, coaching, parenting, uh, witch doctors. Yeah, yeah. You know, and you know, say that in seriousness. Yeah. And so I don't think it's an overused word. And I do feel that it's possible to pinpoint the powerful ingredients in healing. And a good relationship is definitely one of them. Yeah. Empathy is another. Um, and so on and so on. So yeah, no, I, I quite like the word healing. The other, the other thing about healing that, that springs to mind there is that it's, it's only the person that can heal. So we, we create the conditions for healing. That you, do, you don't need to necessarily elevate yourself into this big healer actually the most important process is them healing themselves. Yeah, because there's nothing that we can do to someone to heal them. We don't, I mean, even if, for example, a broken bone that needs to be realigned yes. surgically, yes. That, that's not healing per se. That's creating the conditions for, for healing. I get it. I get putting it. A, putting a plaster on a cut is not 
that's not healing it that's creating the conditions reducing yeah. the stress in our lives is not healing it's creating the conditions so there's not actually anything we have to do to directly heal is a thought that i've often had wow wow so if somebody comes to you uh, with a, an, an issue to do with pain it's not so much what you do to or with them that matters but your ability to to i guess inspire them to work on healing themselves yeah yeah and i think there's elements of people wanting to hear from you that they can do that almost sometimes a permission yeah can i yes you can yeah, yeah. would you like to know <laughs> how and so the witch doctor who's throwing bones, I bet you if you did a controlled trial of throwing bones versus throwing fruit, you won't find any difference. But the throwing of the bones is a, sends powerful signals to the person that they can get better, that this witch doctor believes they can get better. Um, and it frees the person to believe they can get better. Um, I wonder. Yeah, well, within a certain culture of, of belief that that's what happens or, you know, culture and the social yeah. system in which we, we embed ourselves and we learn from and are conditioned by will have an influence on that. And that's, you know, maybe partly some of the things we were talking about before, you know, we've been brought up in a way of when we were young, if you were unwell, you went to the doctor, they gave you a prescription, you took a pill and you got better. You didn't do anything. That's really passive. But it's still a very common form of, well, treatment in inverted commas. That's what happens to a lot of people. They're not in control. They're not, it's not about them as a person. Yes, and for you, for you that's, that's going to be pretty central if you're dealing with something like pain, um, that, that they do feel that they're in in, they can take charge of this. Yeah, absolutely, that, that empowerment. But I would imagine that that's the same in many ways for an athlete, the same for a kid at school, to feel seen and heard. And I think yeah. that's where the empathy, the compassion, the curiosity, the presence yeah. of MI is so important. That's correct. And motivational interviewing is just a way of having that conversation about change and improvement so that you specifically focus on what they feel they can do to improve. And the techniques in motivational interviewing or the dance steps are all geared to that end. And, and central among them is, is the use of listening statements, which is the subject for another discussion. Yeah, uh, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So, Steve, listen, I know that you've got to go on to another call. Um, so it would be great to pick this up again and do a part two and probably uh, many other parts after. Um, but if people want to know more about motivational interviewing, where, where could, where's the best place to go to find out? Well, I've got a website, which is my name, stephenrolnick.com. Um, They'll find me searching on Twitter because my name is not very common. Um, there's also a wonderful website produced by a group of uh, volunteers, a trainers network, and they, they do volunteer, they have, there's many thousands of them in this network. It's called Mint, M-I-N-T. 
um, Mint Motivational Interviewing. They've got a wonderful website that they that they um, populate. Um, yeah. Okay, fantastic. Now I can highly recommend. I mean, all your books are on the website. The most recent one, I believe, is the athletes based. Yeah, that's called Coaching Athletes to Be Their Best. And Richmond, you know, I apologize if this discussion has sort of gone out into the stratosphere of healing in a way, but in a way I don't, if you know what I mean. We've allowed the conversation to fly off, but um, I hope it's a, it's a stimulating one for your listeners and for your mum. Absolutely. That's that's where I wanted it, just organic, just chatting and seeing where it goes. And uh, yeah. it's been brilliant. We can do a part two whenever you like, man. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well... All the best, and we'll uh, we'll catch up soon. Yeah, I will chat soon. All the best, there. Bye. Cheers.